In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, today we have a crazy scenario where Christ comes and He sees this paralytic man and the scripture tells us that He knew He was laying in that condition for a long time. And He asks Him an absurd question. He says, Do you want to be made well? Right now, this man has been in that condition for 38 years and whether Christ knew the exact date or not, but he, he knew very well that he was in that condition for a long time. So for him to ask that question, do you want to be, be made well, is very strange. It's almost like when I was thinking about this, I, I, I can imagine if, if, if one of us, God forbid, we get into a car accident and you know, we're, we're seriously injured in the car, somebody who might have seen the accident, like walking along the sidewalk, for example, comes over and he sees that you're not looking good, you're, you're bleeding and, and you're injured. And he asks you a question. He says, hey, do you want me to get help? Do you, do you want me to call 911 or do you want to just hang out right there? So it, it, it's almost like an unnecessary question to even ask. You know, the, the, the paralytic man must have just looked at Christ and just rolled his eyes like, yeah, do you, do you think I like sitting here? And, and being in this condition, paralyzed all these years? Right? But there is a reason why Christ asks this question, as absurd as it might seem, and, and even though it might seem a little offensive for him to even ask, but there is a reason. So, St. Augustine says, He who created us without our help, will not save us without our consent. He who created us without our help will not save us without our consent. So, what St. Augustine is telling us here is that God always respects our freedom. He always respects our freedom. St. Porphyrius says, God respects our freedom. He doesn't abolish it. He loves us. He doesn't make us slaves. He gives us worth. He's not a simple spectator in our life. He provides and cares for us as our Father, but He also respects our freedom. He doesn't pressure us. So, this, this seemingly dumb question is given to us to serve a, a, a profound theological lesson. Okay, so we can actually learn a couple of things from this question. When Christ comes and asks Him, Do you want to be made well? This question teaches us something about God. It tells us who God is, and it tells us something about us. It tells us who we are. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, it tells us that God is love. Because Christ comes, and He doesn't just impose on the paralytic man what He thinks is best for him. Imagine for just a moment that Maybe, I, I know this is a stretch, but maybe the paralytic man just enjoyed all the pity that he received from everybody walking along. Or I, I don't know, something ridiculous like that. And maybe he really did want to stay in that condition. I mean, people don't always choose what's best for them because they have a different preference, right? So Christ doesn't say, like, this is what's best for you. I'm going to make you do this. I'm going to make you do that. I'm going to make you go left. I'm going to make you go right. He doesn't force upon us what He thinks is best for us, because He is love. 
And that's what love is. Love cannot exist without freedom. And, and we see that from our creation, how God created Adam and Eve. He created them with love. He created us with love. And by that, it means He gave us freedom. Freedom to choose what's best for us or to turn our back away from Him. And that's why He asks this question, do you want to be made well? Because you have the freedom to choose. I love you and I want to give you the freedom. We have a loving Father that always gives us the choice to decide to, to go whichever way we, we, we desire. Okay? And what this tells us about us is that we are free creatures by nature. We are not slaves. Right? We are loved with a love that is so far beyond anything that we can imagine. And for us to have that grace of freedom is for us to actually have dignity. It's for us to have so much grace that, that we have the freedom to go whatever way we desire. So we're not robots. We're not. We have freedom. So how does this man answer this crazy question? He says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm going, another steps down before me. While I'm going, another steps down before me. So what he's basically saying here is, I've been trying. But as soon as I try, I fail. While I'm going, another steps down before me. So I've been trying, but every time I try, I fail. Somebody steps down before me. So, what, what can we learn from this man who's in this condition? Like, what's his attitude towards years of failure? For 38 years, he's trying and failing, trying and failing, right? But what we can learn is that he hasn't given up, right? He's still trying. He hasn't quit, even though he's stuck. He's stuck in the same condition for 38 years. It seems like he hasn't made any progress. He's still paralyzed, right? And sometimes we feel stuck. Sometimes we're trying to build a certain virtue, and we can't. Maybe we're trying to increase our love or our faith, and it just seems like it's not growing. We're stuck. Maybe we're trying to eliminate a certain sin. Maybe we're trying to control our tongue. We're trying to avoid gossip or we're trying to avoid uh, losing our cool and, and getting angry. But we just can't. We're stuck in, in the same sin over and over again. So how do we respond? How do we deal with our failures whenever time after time we try and we fail? So I want to mention a couple of significant people that understood failures in a different way. Okay? And the first person that comes to mind, I mean, he's definitely not in the Bible, <laughs> but the first person that comes to mind is Thomas Edison. Okay? A lot of people know Thomas Edison for inventing the light bulb, but what they don't know is that he failed thousands of times before that. Okay? And, and he saw those failures in a completely different way. Alright, so this is what Thomas Edison says. I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. He says, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. 
So, Thomas Edison didn't see every mistake just as a useless failure. But he learned from it. He realized, oh, this doesn't work. So, this teaches me something. Okay, so we have to keep in mind that as we're struggling and, and we're, we're failing to make progress, that we can learn even from those struggles, right? Another person that comes to mind who everybody knows uh, was successful is Michael Jordan, okay? Everybody knows Michael Jordan won six championships and so many other titles, right? But what we don't know is he actually had a lot of failures. So I'm going to share with you a poster that like every Michael Jordan fan growing up probably had this on their wall in their room. Okay, but it, he, he, he says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life. And that's why I succeed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. See, Jordan was successful because he learned from his failures. He, he, he credits his success to his failure. He says, I failed over and over again, and that's why I succeed. Those failures actually taught me more than anything else. Now, that doesn't mean in our spiritual life we can condone the mistakes that we make. It doesn't mean that we just validate our sins and say, oh, I'm just learning from my sins and I'm going to keep moving forward. That's ridiculous. But when we do fall, what do we do? We got to just learn from it and move on. We got to repent. We got to change our mindset and continue moving forward. We got to keep fighting, right? God gave us a free will for us to work. He gave us a free will so that we can continue striving forward. It took this man 38 years, but he never gave up. For 38 years, he was in the same condition. He had a million reasons to, to give up and make excuses. He had a million reasons to just lose all hope. But for 38 years, He's telling Christ, while I'm going down, another steps down in front of me. So I'm still trying. I haven't given up. And that's a profound lesson for us to learn. So we often forget that our spiritual progress takes time. It takes time and sometimes it takes years. Hopefully we can make progress quickly, but... That's not always the case. There's a story, there was a, uh, a brother who went to Abba Theodore. And he told him, Father, I'm, I'm struggling to, to find peace and comfort and, and to really have any progress in my spiritual life. And this brother was living alone in solitude. Right? And so Abba Theodore told him, look, maybe it's better for you to live with the monks to go into the, the, the monastery and the community with all the rest of the monks and to live there for a while. And maybe that will give you more peace and comfort to make progress. So he left his 
solitude where, where he lived alone in a cell outside of the monastery. And he went into the monastery with the monks and lived there for a while. And then after a few days, he went back to Abba Theater and he said, I'm still not making any progress. I, I st- still have no peace. And, and like I feel like I'm stuck. So Abba Theodore told him, look, you haven't made any progress whenever you're alone. And you haven't made any progress whenever you're living in the community of monks. So I'm just going to read to you exactly where the story picks up from here. The old man said to him, tell me, how many years have you been laboring? The brother said, eight years. In reply, the old man said, truly I've been struggling for 70 years and I haven't found peace for even a single day. And you want to have peace after eight years? <laughs> so <laughs> I know a lot of us might be thinking, okay, that's actually like more devastating and depressing than inspirational. <laughs> because I don't have 80 years to, to make progress or 70 years or whatever. But just take away from the story the, 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 the principle that Progress takes time. It takes time. And if you don't expect to work and to work hard and to work for long, you're setting yourself up for failure. So we can learn a lot from the condition of this paralytic man. Okay, And I want to go back to this response that he gave Christ. He says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm going... Another steps down before me. I want to focus on the first part of that phrase right now. Sir, I have no man. Now, what is he really telling Christ when he says, I have no man to put me into the pool? What he's really telling Christ is, I'm stuck here because no one's helping me. I can't do this alone. I need someone. He says, I have no man. And because I have no man, I'm not making any progress. I'm not getting into the water. So you see, he's not trying to fool himself and say, Oh, I got this. <laughs> he's not trying to fool himself and say, I'm going to figure this out. But he's telling Christ, I don't have anybody. There's nobody helping me. And that's why I'm stuck in this position. Had, had someone been here helping me, I would make progress. But I need someone. He's crying out for help. He's telling Christ his need. He's telling Christ that he's not going to make it work on his own. And that's very tough to say. It's very tough for us to just admit that. How many of us are willing to say, I need help. I need someone to carry me into the water. I need someone to move me forward. I need somebody to, to pick me up and to support me. How many of us are regularly running to the priests of the church for confession and spiritual guidance? Or do we just try to depend on our own abilities even more after we fail? You know, a lot of times we fail and we say, oh, I'm just going to work harder and try to figure it out. Right? We, we, tra- we say things like, uh, I just need to do this or I just need to do that. I need to try a little bit harder. And th- that's like the biggest lie that we could feed our own minds after we're stuck and, and we're constantly failing. You see, this man was extremely tempted to think like that. He was extremely tempted to say, look, I just need to figure it out on my own. 
I, I, I really need to put my will and strength together and work even harder and I'm going to make it happen. He was, he was definitely tempted to say that for 38 years, he must have thought that. But he's telling Christ, I need someone. I don't have someone to put me into the water. See, the more we rely on ourselves, the more we fail. Father Matthew the Poor says, Therefore, if after stumbling and falling, we blame and curse our will, this only goes to show that we admit to walking according to the dictation of our own will. If after falling, we rally our will once again and reinforce it, we're in fact preparing ourselves for another fall of greater violence. In this way, we insist on making our will responsible for spiritual progress. So, he's saying a lot of times we fall and we say, look, I just need to put my will together and try even harder. And what that does is it makes us think that our will is what's responsible for our spiritual progress, but that's a great lie. So, we need to depend on God and the guidance of the church. Ironically, we tend to try even harder when we fail. And that's typically the, the natural response. And, and, and that's what the world teaches us, right? Whenever you fall, what does the world say? Look, get up and try harder. That's not how the spiritual life works. It's the exact opposite. The more we think that way, the more we fuel our failures. What leads us to depend on our will is this, is this lie that I just need to try harder, right? So here's the solution. If we really wish to avoid stumbling blocks, sins, and falls, we have to refrain from blaming our will and spurring it on for further activity and ardor. Nay, we must abdicate our will and lose all hope in it completely. We must subdue it and offer it with all integrity definitively to God. Stumbling on the way we should therefore prompt us stumbling along the way should therefore prompt us to ask ourselves whether we have actually surrendered our will to God and whether our confidence in him is growing or not. So when we fall it should actually be a cue for us to ask ourselves, was I really depending on my strength or was I depending on God? That totally changes the way we think about our failures. So we got to totally forget about our confidence in our own will and our strength and our abilities. Because only God can give us success. Success comes from God and from no one else. It doesn't come from our strength. It doesn't come from our will. And it doesn't come from our abilities or our intelligence or whatever we personally have. It comes from God and God alone. Think of all the failed goals and, and, and that spark that quickly died after you read a powerful book or after you heard an inspirational sermon. We typically walk out and we say, okay, I'm going to shape up my life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then what typically happens? We make no progress. <laughs> we, we fall into the same failures. 
So we got to think about whether we've really been depending on God or our own will. Alright, so there's something else that we can learn from this man. We can learn that he had no self-pity or despair. And for 38 years, for him to continue trying, for him to, to tell Christ, I'm trying, I'm trying to go down. While I'm going down, another steps before me. That means he hasn't lost hope. He hasn't just fell, fallen into this self-pity and despair and say, uh, I'm, I'm a cripple and I'm not going to get anywhere. Right? He, he could have found a million reasons or excuses to pity his condition. But we know that he didn't pity himself. He didn't quit. And we're often tempted to despair when we're overwhelmed and we feel like we can't make any progress. We're often tempted to just pity our condition and say, well, God didn't give me that sort of strength or I don't have these abilities and I'm... I'm not going to make any progress. And we just pity ourselves and then we fall into more despair and we fail to make any progress. I'm going to share with you a story about a monk who struggled with this. So along his his spiritual journey, he, he, he fell into the temptation of just totally giving up and, and he, he left his uh, monastic discipline. But a few days later, he realized that he made a big mistake and he regretted it. So he wanted to just pick up where he left off and to restart his spiritual life, but he couldn't. Every time he would try to go back to the life that he was living, he would fail over and over again. He was, he was falling into this state of despair because he couldn't make any progress. So, he, he went to his elder and his elder told him, listen, let me explain to you how you can overcome this struggle by another story. So, this is almost like Inception. Right? There's a story inside a story, but <laughs> just go with it. <laughs> so, the elder is telling this disciple, there was a man who had a big field and he neglected it for a while and this big field started to produce like thorns and and weeds and all sorts of bushes and and stuff that that ruined the field and he he neglected it for a long time but he realized that you know it's time to to clear out the field and make use of it so after he came to that realization, he, he went to his son and he said, Son, I want you to go and clear this field for me. So his son went out and um, he saw this large field, like acres and acres of land that's full of weeds and so much debris and stuff. And as soon as he saw it, he was just totally overwhelmed. So he sat there thinking about how, how is he going to possibly clear this field? And so he just sat back and said, you know, there's, there's no point to even try. Forget it. It's, it's useless. I'm not even going to bother. And he did that 
throughout the whole day just sitting there and he said, I'm not going to bother. The next day he returned to the land and he looked at it and he tried to start. He said, ah, oh, there's no point. It's useless. I'm not going to bother. He continued to do that for a few days until finally the father went out to the field to check up on his progress. And as soon as he saw the field, he went to his son and he said, why have you made no progress? The field looks the exact same way as it was when I first gave it to you. And his son told him, to be honest, Father, I, I, I looked at the field and I was just overwhelmed. I, I, I knew that there was no way I was going to make any progress. And his father told him, look, son, if you had just approached this work in a different mindset, you would have made progress. I want you to forget about the size of the field. I want you to think about just clearing the same amount of space as the size of your own bed at home, which is, you know, just a few feet. Every day you would come to the field and you'd clear out just a few feet and forget about everything else. And so his son said, all right, you know, every day I'll just clear out a couple of feet and forget about everything else. And he did that. And day after day, he started to make more progress. He made more progress. And after he saw some progress, he was actually more motivated to work even harder and the, the, the rate of his progress increased and, and he finally cleared the entire field. So, going back to the story of the elder responding to this brother, he tells him this, So brother, it's the same with you. Do your work little by little and you won't get discouraged and God, through His grace, will restore you to your former condition. So, we shouldn't feel discouraged or pity ourselves. Because a lot of times we fall into despair when, when we keep falling. But regardless of how many times we may sin or fall, we should never despair. Father Matthew the poor says, In this context, any compassion on the self is a devilish attempt to revive its private will and desire. So, Forget about having compassion and pity on your own self. It says, The excessive dejection to which man may surrender after falling into a sin is actually a sign of pride and self-esteem. Man here regards his will with more respect than it really deserves. He thinks it outrageous that he should fall at all. He thinks his will is too great to stumble. So, think about it this way. Disappointments or despair only come from failed expectations, right? You know, whenever we expect something, we don't get it, we're disappointed, right? Disappointments only come when you depend on someone or something and that person or that thing fails you. So if you have no expectations from your own will or abilities when you don't depend on yourself, will you ever be disappointed? Will you ever fall into despair? Father Kahitan, in, in the book Humility of Heart, he says, to be distressed and overwhelmed by sadness is simply pride, which is born of an excessive self-love. We have too great an opinion of ourselves and this is the reason why we're disturbed. 
He who is humble even though he falls through frailty soon repents. He is not astonished at having fallen. Because he knows that of himself he is only capable of evil and would do far worse if God didn't protect him with his grace. So, we fall into despair only when we rely on our own will and abilities for success. See, all God cares about is just an honest effort. God isn't concerned about the results. And you know, this is a completely radical shift from society's understanding of success. Right? Imagine that you, you have to meet a certain quota for work, and you work hard and you work hard, and your boss expects you to finish three different projects. And by the end of the week, whenever your time is up, you go to your boss and you say, hey, I only finished two of them, but I worked hard. <laughs> I worked hard. And, and you know, my, my heart was in it. I put all my effort into it. What's your boss going to say? I expected these three projects to be done and they're not done. You know, there's, there's going to be consequences. If you study hard for an exam and you, you get your grade back and you get a 50%, you're not going to go back to your teacher and say, you know, I really don't deserve the fail. <laughs> Do you know how much I studied? <laughs> Do you not know that I stayed up all night every day these last few weeks? Your teacher's going to tell me, yeah, but <laughs> you marked the wrong answers. And, and these are the results. It is what it is. Society determines success based on results. God determines success based on our effort and our heart. You know, if you go back to the example of Thomas Edison and Michael Jordan for a second, why do people say that Thomas Edison was successful? Why do people say that Michael Jordan was successful? Sure, they worked hard, right? But what, what would they say about Thomas Edison if he never invented the light bulb? And what would they say about Michael Jordan if he never had six championships? Their, their legacy would have been just dust and ashes. They would have been forgotten. Right? But the spiritual life is different. The spiritual life is about heart. It's about effort. It's about an honest commitment to God and we leave the results entirely up to Him. Father Matthew the poor says, reject any feeling of your own responsibility for success or failure. Just forget about that responsibility that you place on yourself to succeed in your spiritual life. It's going to cripple you. He says, in your obedience to God's commandments, never give up your struggle or constraint, however you fail or whatever your temptations. For behind your vanquished soul stands Christ and in His hand the crown for your struggle. You're then responsible not for your success, but for your effort. I'm going to repeat that again. You're then responsible not for your success, but for your effort. So many times, many of us have been trying to eliminate certain sins or gain certain virtues. And, and what do we say if we try and try and try without seeing any results? 
we call ourselves failures, right? But what we don't know is God measures success and progress in a completely different way. I'll share with you a story from St. Paisios. So, there was a, a monk in the, in the monastery who would get drunk every day. And of course, this was scandalous for the monks in the monastery to witness, right? Visitors would come and see a drunk monk, and this, this was completely offensive to everybody. So they, they didn't really tolerate him well, and you know, day after day he would continue in the same behavior, and, and you know, he didn't change at all, but finally, when the monk died, a few of the monks uh, ran out to St. Paisius, who lived outside of the monastery in his own cell, in a hut alone outside of the monastery. So he doesn't really know what's going on inside of the monastery. And he told him, Father, this problem is finally solved. You know, this monk that was totally um, scandalizing the monastery is dead. And finally... The monastery is back to the reputation that it deserves. And he just kind of stopped them right, right there. And he says, look, look this isn't news to me. I, I, I know that he passed away. And so they were shocked because he just passed away. And there's no way that um, he could have known. And he tried to explain to them that he, that he, he knew. And it was the, the, the same monk, the drunk monk, that everybody was talking about and asked him, well, how, how did you know? And he, he told them, look, as soon as he died, just a moment ago, I saw the angels, all the multitude of angels and heavenly hosts come to take his soul up to heaven. And so they were shocked. They were like, wait, are you talking about the same drunk monk? And he said, yeah, that same monk. And he told them, look, Siran, let me explain to you the story behind this monk's life. So, this monk, as a child, when he when he was a little baby, he he had a unique life. So, it was a time whenever the Turks would come and abduct children to take them into slavery and force them to do work for them. And the parents of this little baby would would have to go and work in the field. And when when they would go to work in the field, they were afraid that if their baby would make a sound, that the Turks would come and take their baby away from them and they would lose their child. So what they would do every day is that they would put alcohol in this baby's milk. So I, I hope no parents <laughs> are getting any ideas right now, but they did this so that the child would just sleep through the day, and if the child is drunk and sleeping, he wouldn't make a sound, and they would protect him that way. But what consequently happened was that this child grew up an alcohol addict. And so, when he was an adult, he hated this addiction, and he wanted to change his life. So he entered the monastery and pursued a life of repentance. Now, from the beginning of his monastic walk, he would drink about 20 bottles of alcohol a day. By the end of his life, 
he cut down to about two or three bottles. Now, he didn't stop drinking. He was still a drunk. He entered the monastery as a drunk man, and he died as a drunk man. Many of us would look at that and say, okay, he's still a drunk. Where's the progress? But deep down inside, this man was fighting demons. This man was fighting a war that purified his soul to the extent that the heavenly hosts came down to lift up his soul to heaven. You see, a lot of times we just look at the results from from the surface, right? And what we don't know is that the spiritual battle is won by our effort, is won by our honesty. So at this point, St. Paisius told the monks that came to share this news with him, he said, the world for years saw only an alcoholic monk who scandalized the pilgrims. But God saw a fighter who fought a long struggle to reduce his passion. God saw a fighter. God saw a warrior. And a lot of times, we're in the same shoes. We're fighting. We're like this paralytic man. We're stuck for years. We feel paralyzed. We're not making progress. But we're either going to despair, we're going to fall into this, this disastrous self-pity that ruins our progress, or we're going to continue to move forward. Mother Teresa says something incredibly beautiful. There was an interview that, um, that I remember watching where the, the person interviewing her told her, look, there's no way you're going to eliminate world hunger or, or feed all of the, the hungry or eliminate poverty. So what's the point of everything that you're doing? Like, do you think you can really help everybody and eliminate poverty and feed all the hungry? This is what she responded saying. God has not called me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. And the person interviewing her at this point was just like completely red. <laughs> and this is the attitude we have to have. We have to approach every work with an honest effort, to be faithful in our spiritual life, in our family life, in our work, in our relationships, for students in the way that you study, for children in the way that you obey your parents. No matter how many times you fail, just be faithful. God requires faithfulness. He doesn't require success and the results the way the world imagines. So I'm just going to leave you with one final story. Okay, Everybody knows this amazing saint. St. Moses the Black, right? And we know that for St. Moses the Black, he lived a terrible life. And if anybody can relate to this paralytic man, it's St. Moses the Black. I mean, he was stuck for years committing the same terrible sins, murder and fornication and all sorts of violence. And he finally came to God. 
He repented, he changed his life. But for this man to make a complete 180 degree turn wasn't easy. So one day after he just had like a, a very tough time with, with his spiritual struggles, he went back to his spiritual elder, which is at this time was um, Saint Isidore or Abba Isidore. And he tells him, like, I keep falling, I can't keep fighting. You know, the, the same old life that I'm struggling with is still battling against me. So, Ava Isidore told him, look, just go back to your cell and keep fighting. Don't give up, just keep fighting. And he said, no, you don't understand. Like, I, I can't. I'm not going back to my cell. I'm not fighting. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. So Ava Isidore said, okay, look, come with me. Let me show you something. So he took him out onto the terrace of the monastery. And he said, look towards the west. So, Ava Moses turned to the west. And he looked and he saw crowds of demons flying about and making noise. And, and launching their, their attacks against all of the monks. And, you know, it was a horrific sight to see. But Ava Isidore, that's enough, just turn this way now. And look towards the east. So, Ava Moses turned, and when he looked towards the east, he saw a multitude of holy angels shining with glory. He saw all the heavenly hosts and the angels, all the guardian angels of the monks, standing there, praying, and helping all of the monks with their struggles. So, Ava Isidore at this point, responded to him saying, see, there are sent, he says, see, these are sent by the Lord to the saints to bring them help. While those in the West fight against them, those who are with us are more in number than they are. Then Abba Moses gave thanks to God and returned to his cell with courage. See, the angels are fighting on our side. The saints are interceding on our behalf. But there's no need to even mention that. God, <laughs> God is with us. If God is with us, who can be against us, right? So, God is fighting our battles. We just need to be faithful with the little that He has given us to keep striving that His name may be glorified at all times to whom is due glory forever and ever. Amen.